Hello, everybody. Welcome to ThinkBox Radio, news, tips, and stories from America's coolest college makerspace. I'm Robert Smith, and we're coming to you from Sears ThinkBox, the innovation center at the Case School of Engineering, the largest makerspace on an American college campus. Our goal is to share the magic that happens here and to inspire your own maker dreams. This is our inaugural podcast, and we're happy and proud to have with us today Ian Charnas, the manager of, Theor- of Sears ThinkBox. Welcome, Ian. Thanks for having me, Bob. Ian, you've been called the maestro of the makers by me when I covered economic development for the plane dealer. How would you describe, though, what you are and what you do here at ThinkBox? Great question. First, I would talk about ThinkBox. It would be a mistake to call ThinkBox a makerspace. People might think of us and use that term, makerspace, because we have equipment for making things. We've got a wood shop and a metal shop, but uh, you know it's not 1920 anymore. We have laser cutters, we have 3D scanners, 3D printers, water jet cutters, all kinds of modern electronics, modern machines. We are a university-based innovation center. We happen to have a makerspace that that covers floors three, four, and five of our seven-story building. So we have resources on uh, floors six and seven that we'll be opening uh, in just a few weeks here to help you be you a student, a staff or faculty, or member of the community, take your idea to market. Get help writing a business plan, finding investors, um, and really commercializing your idea. So my job is to help facilitate all that as sort of the general manager. I help facilitate your access to the machines and uh, help push you to take that good idea to market. So it's kind of a whole ecosystem you're describing here. Yeah. That'd be a great word. We often use the word ecosystem to describe the building, and we say this is an ecosystem for innovation. Um, What you'll see at many um, universities, uh, unfortunately, is uh, rather siloed departments. There'll be an innovation activity that's happening in the medical school. There'll be a different one that's happening in management. Uh, The law schools will have their own entrepreneurship uh, center, and so on, of course, engineering and science. What we're trying to do here is to put all of those together, In the real world, there's no project that's made only by engineers or only by lawyers or only by business people. You need to bring into the table every single one of those, plus industrial design, plus uh, folks from the medical school. Uh, You need to have a a, a wide number of people at the table so that you can have those those kind of beneficial collisions that create great ideas. So, um, well, let's start with this. What kind of people come in here? Is it just students? Is it mostly engineers? Who? Is it, are they all makers? In terms of our audience, right now we get about five to 6,000 visits a month. Wow. 80% of those are case people, students, staff, faculty, meaning that 20% are from the public. Um, I'm not sure if I mentioned this, but ThinkBox is not open strictly to students, staff, and faculty at Case Western Reserve University. ThinkBox is free and open to the public. So that they means can just walk in. Anybody can just walk right in. Mm. Um, if you combine that fact with our scale, this is a 50,000-square-foot, $50 million project. It turns out that this is the world's largest open-access innovation center at any university anywhere in the world. Oh, my. But you asked about the types of people that come in. Yeah. Um, were you asking about whether they were student, staff, faculty, or the division Yeah, of- I'm wondering, do they come in here with a project in mind, or do yeah. they come in here with, like, a, a problem? Okay. Or do they come in just curious and end up doing something? Sure. People come here for every kind of reason you can imagine. We have a big slice of our audience that comes here for personal projects. They're working on a hobby, a craft. They just want to learn the machines. They're here for personal reasons. 
and that is a great motivator to get you over the hump of learning how to use these machines. Once you're past that hurdle, once you have knowledge of a laser cutter and a 3D printer and a water jet cutter and welding, once you have those in your mental toolbox, your mind starts thinking about new ideas. Hmm. Your brain lets you have new ideas because all of a sudden your capabilities have expanded. And we find that students who have come in here for Mother's Day gifts, that was their motivation, they learn how to use the equipment, and then later on in their academic career or their research career, they come back and they have an idea that they think can make an impact on the world. And their brain let them have that idea because their capabilities were expanded. Hmm. So we have folks who come in here for academics when they're working on their course projects. We have folks coming in for research, right? You've got to make your experimental test apparatus. Where do you make that? We have people coming for junior and senior design courses. We have folks even coming here to make their own startup company. And they want a place not only to prototype their idea and have something physically in hand to show prospective investors, but they want those other resources that are opening up on floors six and seven. They want help finding investment. They want help writing a business plan. They want help doing market research to find out if their idea really could make it in the market. So it's all of those things and more. It's a very big tent ecosystem. How about, does anyone stand out in your mind who maybe came in uh, with just a small idea and ended up with a big one? So each month we have five to 6,000 visits. And if we look at unique users, just this last year alone, we had 5,120 unique users. So it's very hard to keep track of people and, and form um, individual relationships, uh, working relationships with each of our users. Um, but of course, we try our best. I remember back when we opened ThinkBox, when I was the, the first and only staff member back in 2012, um, and I was responsible for running ThinkBox and managing it, um, I got to have a lot more personal one-on-one -on -one interactions with our users. And there were a number that stood out. One, one that I might highlight is um, a young woman named Ainsley Buckner. And at that point, she was working for a nonprofit arts organization in the Northeast Ohio area. And their job was to integrate arts education into um, elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools. Mm. So if you were teaching a math class, they would help you use art uh, to bring math alive, to make it meaningful and exciting and engaging, uh, and to help it stick in your minds. So she would come here with a billion and one different ideas, and she would make all of them. She would make uh, electronics. She would make uh, laser-cut uh, light boxes. She made um, all manner of projects, and what I, what I loved about seeing her use the space was her zest for learning new things. She would learn soldering, then she would learn how to put together a simple circuit with a battery and an LED. Um, she got to be such an expert on these machines that eventually, um, just a year or two ago, we hired her to work at ThinkBox, and she now runs our entire prototyping floor. <laughs> that's uh, excellent. So that's Ainsley Buckner, our prototyping that, manager. I didn't realize she had that past here. That's excellent. So, Ian, you have a pretty uh, interesting job in that um, there's really not many people in the world who do what you do, run a maker center, run an innovation space. As you said, you were at one time the first and only employee here. Let's go back to how it started with your time at Case. I know you were in an engineering fraternity, um, and obviously you're in engineering school. What was that like, your time at Case with the frat? Oh, yeah. I came to Case Western Reserve University in 1998, and I very quickly joined a fraternity called Phi Kappa Psi, which is still on campus today. Um, a fraternity at Case Western Reserve is a little different than a fraternity, I think, at a large public university, at least if I believe the stories I am to hear. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have hazing at this point. 
which I'm very happy about. Yeah. It's uh, it's more about um, shared experiences, friendships, um, working together towards common goals. Um, each of the fraternities and sororities on campus have a, a nonprofit that they support, be it the Rape Crisis Center, the Suicide Prevention Center. Uh, cystic fibrosis was the one that uh, Phi Kappa Psi was, uh, was working to help cure uh, at the time when I was on campus. And that, that meant something. That was a, a calling beyond what I came to the university for. It's kind of that big, big, uh, big blue sky um, mission that can uh, help bring people together. And that's part of what I remember, um, was a, um, loving to meet a group of like-minded, uh, intellectually curious, funny, um, unusual, quirky folks. We had uh, people in there who were deep into athletics. We had people who were deep into cryptography. I mean, it was a very wide berth. Um, and that, uh, that was a nice slice of life. We had people from every different political viewpoint, many different religious viewpoints, and that was a welcoming, uh, refreshing experience for me, having come from a small town that really didn't have a lot of uh, diversity in any of those areas. What town was that? I grew up in Brecksville, Ohio. Oh, okay. And we have more we have more trees than people, and okay. I think that's a good way to okay. go about things. <laughs> okay. Um, I love Brecksville. I love it especially for the parks. Um, but but that sounds like a, a great support system. Those frats. Um, you know, as you know, I'm with the Alumni Association, and it's interesting. Many of our alumni are very thankful to their fraternities, and they don't talk about keg parties. What they talk about is how their frat brothers or their sorority sisters got them through the K School of Engineering because it's very hard, and it kind of was this support system for them. And uh, you obviously uh, were helped by that as well. Um, so when um, you've never been the typical case Rockwell engineer. Um, instead, you created things like the Tesla Orchestra. Uh, could you explain to our listeners what that is <laughs> and why you would do something like that? Sure. Uh, the Tesla Orchestra is a kind of an electronic nerd rock group. Um, we built these devices called Tesla coils, and ours don't merely emit giant sparks or bolts of electricity. Um, we've been able to tune the electricity to make music. This was something that's only been possible within the past decade due to the uh, advances in modern power electronics. Uh, there's about six groups in the world doing this, and we're one of them. So we've been to Austria, Croatia, Mexico, the Netherlands. We go around the world, and we set up these two towers. Um, they're actually the world's largest twin musical Tesla coils, and they send out these giant bolts of electricity. And if you see it in person, it is frightening. For a good reason. If you ever see sparks that big in real life, you should run. And you get that feeling in your chest like fight or flight. I should run right now. Okay. But I'm also compelled to stay. And that's a, that's a fun experience. You know, it's the experience of seeing a thriller movie, I think. So we um, play music and then we also do skits to uh, keep it entertaining. So I get in this uh, full body metal suit and I can get out on stage with the Tesla coils. And the giant bolts of lightning will hit me. Um, they would kill any regular person fairly instantly, but thanks to the metal suit, the oh electricity my. gets shunted to ground, and I, I don't die, or at least I haven't died yet, as far oh as my. I'm aware what a of. sight. Okay. This is, this is the afterlife. So there's a point to this, right? What are you trying to prove with the Tesla coil? Um, the I've Tesla. always liked entertaining people. I like putting a smile on people's faces. Okay. And that's probably, if I'm being honest with myself, my, my personal goal with that project. Um, but I also like doing things that are unusual and large, and things that other people haven't done. So to say, these are the world's largest twin musical Tesla coils, and we perform around the world. Mm. Um, it's pretty cool to know that for young people who are in the audience, that they get to see a different vision of what it means to be smart, 
I hope that they're connecting smart and cool in a new way yes. that I think could propel us and maybe if we're thinking at a grand scale, our society to greater heights than, than we're achieving right now. Um, that wouldn't be bad either. That could be a model for the maker scene, a different vision of what is smart. Uh, I'm going to ask you to talk about two more Charnas creations. What's the waterfall swing? Oh, the waterfall swing. So a couple of friends of mine from Case Western and CIA, which of course is the Cleveland Institute of Art, a neighboring art institute on the same campus as Case Western, we wanted to do a large-scale project, and one of us had uh, shared a video of this computerized waterfall from a mall in Japan. And it was just beautiful, these glimmering droplets of water falling, and they were um, controlled about they were they were controlled so that you would see in the sheet of falling water patterns. You would see letters like text or words. You would see art or designs. And it, um, just the sight of it and the sheer technical accomplishment of it was um, was really mesmerizing. And we thought, we want to do that. But, like I said, you don't want to just do what someone else did already. What would the point be? You want to do something that's bigger and bolder and more novel. You want to expound innovative. upon it. You want to innovate on it. So naturally, we thought what would be fun is to add a swing. If you add a swing set to something, it instantly makes it more fun. So we designed a computerized waterfall with a swing set. And when you get on this thing and start swinging, a sheet of water begins to fall. And uh, there's a sensor that can tell where you are. And just as you're about to hit this sheet of water, right, and you're, you're fearful, you're thinking, oh, gosh, I'm going to get drenched, a hole opens up. So the uh, computer sees where you are. It computes the location of the oh, hole. Cool. So that as the hole is falling yes. and as you are swinging, you and the hole intersect at just the right time and you glide through without getting wet. Oh, my. Most of the time. Where do you stage this? This has uh, also been all over the world. It's been in oh. Australia, uh, in Sydney. It's been in the Netherlands. It's been to Austria. It spent uh, four or five months on the roof of an art museum in Austria. It was on uh, NBC's Today Show. It's been at product openings. We were in a Honda commercial um, that aired during the Super Bowl a few years ago. So it's been a very fun project. Um, we love when we see people's faces light up. Uh, from that project, our, our most exciting memory, without a doubt, was from Sydney, Australia. Not only was it a beautiful place, but the, the festival really said, hey, you have to make one of these swings. There were four swings at the time. You have to make one of them accessible. How can we get um, a platform here so that someone in a wheelchair could swing? Uh, and we thought, whoa. We never thought of that, but that's a great idea. I certainly hope for all the work that someone takes us up on this. So we uh, did a, a significant amount of additional work um, to make this happen. And uh, the very first day, a young man who, who uses a wheelchair, he had never swung on a swing in his life, he got on this thing. And look on his face, we forgot all about how much our bodies were aching from the physical labor. We forgot about how hot it was. We forgot about... Uh, any intra-team conflict we may have been having, and we just saw the the glow wash over his face of experiencing a swing for the first time, and to know that we were oh, able to facilitate that experience—that's a memory I'll never forget. That is beautiful. What did you devise, like a, a like a harness or a special seat? Or there's um, a couple products out on the market. It looks like a a platform, like a horizontal, okay, uh, like a st- a stair landing. You know, about a four foot by four foot uh, steel platform. And you, uh, you wheel yourself up onto this platform. And then there's chains uh, that connect you to the, the swing. Or chains that connect the platform to the swing. You're, you're not chained yourself. Okay. <laughs> that would not be a good experience. Okay. 
Excellent. Well, well, you can sounds... see pictures of that at waterfallswing.com. Waterfallswing.com. Thinkbox Radio is brought to you by the Case Alumni Association, which represents the engineering, science, and math graduates of Case Western Reserve University. We're the oldest independent alumni association of engineering and applied science graduates in America. Have you heard of us? If not, you've heard of our graduates. Case grads include Henry Dow, the founder of Dow Chemical, Frank Rudy, the inventor of Nike Aerosol, Paul Buchheit, the creator of Gmail, and Jeanette Griselli-Brown, the first female director of corporate research at BP America. At Case, we're proud of our spirit of discovery and innovation, which is why we support ThinkBox, the world-class innovation center at the Case School of Engineering. And then finally, um, and this one I never heard of, Frostbite's Cafe. That sounds very winter in Cleveland. Is mm-hmm. that still with us? Yeah, that's uh, hidden in a secret location. But uh, a few years ago, Lake Erie froze over. It's very rare that Lake Erie freezes over. It has to get unusually cold. So To freeze uh, over completely. To freeze over to the point where you could walk out on it. Okay. You could drive a car. Okay. And some friends and I were exploring, and we drilled a, a hole in the ice, and we thought, wow, this is two feet deep. Oh. If you go to the Minnesota State Park ice tables, they'll tell you that four inches of ice is perfectly safe to walk on, six inches of ice is that. safe to drive a truck on, and so forth. So to have not just four or six inches, but 24 inches mm. uh, of ice, we thought, this is uh, pretty solid. <laughs> I would feel comfortable holding an event out here. So we want uh, in Cleveland to always have a reason to look forward to the cold. Otherwise, you, you won't like living here. It gets cold. So we made a pop-up restaurant. We fabricated a, a sort of instantly pop upable wooden structure, um, of course, at Thinkbox. And then one uh, very cold winter day, we went out and set it up on the ice, and we gave out free chili to anybody who was brave enough to come meet us. So we set up about a quarter mile north of oh. Edgewater Park um, and the frozen uh, waters of Lake Erie. Just you and the ice fishermen. Just us. Yeah, in, in some parts of Lake Erie, you see a lot of ice fishermen. We, we ended up meeting the police out there because they uh, could not believe that we had gotten a permit for this. But my advice to anybody out there doing unusual things is to always get the permit, because the uh, the look on people's faces when you show them the permit is priceless. <laughs> it's worth the $50 that it takes to actually get the permit. I never thought of that. And that's some key information. You know, there was a tech conference in Cleveland last year, and um, there was a group from the Netherlands, and they had brought their skates Right, and we're downtown. And the guy points out to the lake, and he goes, "Is it safe to skate out there?" I didn't know. Now I know. Four <laughs> inches, you can skate. Mm-hmm. It's excellent, Ian. Thanks for sharing that. So, you've been doing all this great stuff. Um, you got launched from Case. You got launched from your fraternity. How did you get started at uh, Thinkbox? Help us kind of understand the evolution of you at this place. I graduated from Case Western in 2005. I did computer engineering and mechanical engineering, uh, so those were my undergraduate degrees. And I ran a website company for a while. Um, I've always loved making things, so at that point I was making the Tesla Orchestra and helping to make the waterfall swing. And I heard uh, through the grapevine that Case Western Reserve was starting a uh, makerspace or innovation center. And I thought, oh gosh, I I would love to um, help with that project. I'd be pretty passionate about it. And I put my name in the hat, and uh, unfortunately for my boss, they couldn't find anybody really smart or good-looking, so they're stuck with me. And uh, I've been here ever since, so I got the opportunity to help uh, co-found Thinkbox uh, with Malcolm Cook, our executive director, Mm. um, who's been wonderful to work with. 
Um, in the beginning, we had a very small space, uh, 2,000 square feet. I remember in that. The basement, the basement of Glennon Hall? The basement of the Glennon Building. Okay. Uh, we called it the garden level. Okay. <laughs> basement sounds, uh, garden level sounds better than basement, for sure. So we really quickly realized that 2,000 square feet wasn't going to contain this. We quickly got 10 visits a day, 100 visits a month, 1,000 visits yeah. a month, 3,000 visits a month. Yeah. And it became very uh, quickly clear that this 2,000 square foot space was not going to contain this activity. So fortunately, we had some bold visionary um, supporters, um, Larry Sears and Sally Zlotnick Sears, and of course, uh, J.B. Ritchie and Mal Mixon, who really enabled uh, ThinkBox to grow into a much larger facility and a much larger vision. So at this point, we are inside of a 50,000 square foot building. So we went up from 2,000 square feet to 50,000 square feet. Big, bold vision. What, uh, what is it you would like ThinkBox to be known for? Now that you're kind of reaching, you're kind of reaching a crescendo here. You started in the basement, you moved up to a bigger space, you moved into this building, which used to be what a cold storage building, right? Seven floors, huge. You're you're you've already outfitted what five floors, six and seven are about to come online. Mm-hmm. You're almost done. We're What's almost the grand done. vision? What would you like this to be known for? Sure. So currently, ThinkBox is thought of as a leader in the field of makerspaces. We've been invited, uh, both Malcolm and myself, to be founding members of the Higher Education Makerspace Initiative. This is an academic society. If any of you out there are in the ACM or the IEEE or the ASC, you're in an academic society. This is the academic society for um, higher ed makerspaces. So we've been invited alongside uh, members from MIT, Stanford, Yale, Carnegie Mellon, Olin, Georgia Tech, um, any engineers out there know that these are these are top 10 engineering schools. And right there, Case Western Reserve University invited to be one of the founding members. Um, we give talks. We've hosted uh, conferences here. Uh, we've hosted the International Symposium on Academic Makerspaces. Um, we've uh, helped mentor and provide advice to over 200 different universities, colleges, and high schools as they start their makerspaces. So that's where we are today. How are we going to maintain that um, competitive advantage? How are we going to stay in that top 10 list. It's not going to be by doing the same things we've always done. You have to do new things. You have to strike out in bold, uh, tangibly exciting directions. And for us, that's um, to grow from being considered a makerspace to being considered one of the top 10 uh, university innovation centers uh, anywhere in the world. So when we think of university innovation centers, I think of um, some things I've seen at MIT, Mm. uh, be it Sloan or their engine. I think of things at Stanford. Uh, be it their D school or their off-campus accelerator. I think of things at Waterloo University. Of course, that's like the MIT of Canada. They have their Velocity Garage. These are currently thought of as uh, some of the best in the world, alongside with mm, some things at Carnegie Mellon, some things at Georgia Tech, uh, UPenn. We are heading towards being on that list to be one of the top 10 university innovation centers anywhere in the world. So to grow outside of our, um, if you think of a, a crab molting its shell, to to yeah. cast off the shell of being known as a makerspace and to grow into a, get out of our chrysalis and grow into a big, beautiful butterfly um, that is a university innovation center. Okay. That's the next step. And what does it take to get to that level? Is it money? Is it space? Is it commitment from the university, the city? First, you need to have a, a compelling vision to share. Mm. I think with a compelling vision comes motivation, right? 
when you heard John F. Kennedy say, we go to the moon not because it is easy, but because it is difficult, because it will measure the best of our abilities and the best of our ability to uh, organize ourselves. That is how you motivate yourself, right? And that's how you motivate others um, uh, that are inside the organization and outside the organization. So to, to look you in the eye and say, with your help, ThinkBox will be one of the world's best university innovation centers and to know that you are part of that, to be able to be proud of that yourself is a, is a compelling vision. And from there comes everything else. From there comes rebranding the website so that you see less pictures of machines and more pictures of checks being signed. From there comes um, greater support and wider support, uh, not only from uh, engineering alums, but from alums uh, of the uh, business world, alums of the legal world, uh, because they too are very concerned and very passionate about innovation. Um, from there comes help, uh, different kinds of help from university administration, uh, from President Barbara Snyder, who's been our, our strongest mm-hmm. advocate um, throughout our entire growth process. Couldn't say enough nights things about Barbara Snyder. Um, but that's, that's where it all gets started, is having a big, bold vision. And our bold, bold vision is to become one of the world's best university innovation centers uh, and to reach those lists. Um, there's a list on best colleges. There's a list from Reuters. There's a couple other lists out there. But you will see us place on those lists to be one of the best. Great goal, Ian. We know you're well on your way. And um, listeners, if you're ever in Cleveland, get to Sears ThinkBox. Uh, it's worth a tour. Okay, so we're um, we're going to wrap it up here now, our, our debut edition. And um, as we promised, every episode of ThinkBox Radio includes a how-to tip from a ThinkBox expert. We're going to use Ian as our expert here. And Ian, do you have a how-to tip for us today? Uh, a common annoying thing that happens in your house is one of the shower rings breaks. Okay. You've got a little shower in your home. Maybe it has a shower curtain. Yes. And maybe you've got one of those fancy like little doors that close, and you've, you've cast off that shower curtain. But for the rest of us, <laughs> stuck in shower curtain land, sometimes those rings break. Right, you're trying to take off your shower curtain. You open up those rings, take off the shower curtains. You can put it in the laundry, and the rings break. And uh, you can't uh, go get an exact duplicate of that ring, right? Because Bed uh, Bath and Beyond doesn't sell those anymore. <laughs> you got to buy thirty of them. Yeah. Um, so if you wanted to have some fun and learn something new and save a little bit of money, you can come down to ThinkBox and bring one of the non-broken shower rings. You can, you can do a 3D scan. You can use our $100,000 3D scanner to scan your 10-cent shower ring. Love it, love it. And then once you have uh, a virtual representation of that shower ring, you have a 3D model that you can view on the computer. Now you can take that and put it into the 3D printer, and you'll go home for like 10 cents. You'll go home with a new shower ring. So it's a, a fun way to Who apply knew? the makerspace um, in your home in a way that's uh, kind of a, appropriate for beginner makers. Who knew? Excellent. Okay. So there you have it, everybody. There's your tip from our, our super maker, and that's our first edition of ThinkBox Radio. And we want to thank Ian Charnas, the manager and co-founder of ThinkBox, for being with us today. Thank you, Ian. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob.